ever wondered why we have so many trials in the church today, so many people going through severe trials, perhaps a health issue? Uh, why do we see uh, people not being healed instantly on a regular basis? We do from time to time. But why are so many not healed instantly? Why did God allow our youth camp last year to shut down because of COVID? Very different situation last year. Why does he allow some of our young people to die? We've had a number of young people over the years who have uh, been killed in accidents of one sort or another. Why does he allow splits and schisms in the church? And why is it that some of the most wicked people on this earth seem to go through life with all the blessings and the gifts? I don't think that any of you won that lottery uh, the other day, yesterday, last night, I guess it was. I don't know if it was New York or if it was nationally, but $1.2 billion lottery. And uh, I'm sure that there are some people in the church that think that that's the thing to do, to spend money on the lottery. Uh, but uh, the fact is that the very few people come out on top. I think the chance of winning was one in 320 million which is not really very good odds, uh, to say the least. But somebody won it, apparently, and others won smaller amounts, just a few million dollars. But why is it that it's usually somebody outside the church? Now, uh, again, I'm not promoting anybody participating in that. If you took all the money that people put in the lottery and just set it aside every, every week, you'd come out far, far ahead for most people. But nevertheless... Why is it that we aren't the, quote, the lucky ones in that sense, in, in a physical sense? Why is it that God's people seem to have problems from time to time? Well, the Bible gives us answers to all these questions uh, because God is working out a far greater purpose than we might imagine or that we can really comprehend. The stakes are high. They're incredibly high. And so God is making sure that those who enter his kingdom are fully on board with his way of life, his program. And to that end, he is humbling and he is testing us. And if you'd like a title, it is to humble and to test you, to humble and to test you. We're not the first ones to ask questions about the difficulties of life. Many times in the Psalms we read David asking the question, how long? No, it's just one of them. In Psalm 13, Psalm 13, and we'll begin in verse 1. He says here, how long, O eternal, will you forget me forever? Have you forgotten me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? When you look at all of the Psalms, the Psalms of David, you find that he is oftentimes asking God, how long? Why is it that the, the wicked prosper? As there are a couple of Psalms on that. Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. 3773. Easy to remember. Why is it that the, the ordinary people in this world 
when oftentimes the wicked, the rich, the famous seem to have so much. And, of course, we know that it's not always what it appears to be, as we had the example of Johnny Depp and uh, what was her name? I can't even think of it. I never heard of her before. Uh, but anyway, you, you, you know who it is if you follow that at all. Why is it that, you know, they, they seem to have a wonderful life, but it's not all so good. And now we just have in the last day or so an apology from, from, uh, what's his name? Will, something or other, Will, uh, for slapping another individual, a comedian there. Uh, life isn't always what it appears to be, but on the surface, there are people that seem to have everything. And then we have people who have chronic illnesses in the church and are struggling uh, just to to get along, in some cases struggling financially just to get along. Why is it that way? Well, David asked the question time and again. He cried out to God and he said, how long? Why aren't you intervening right now? Why aren't you solving all of my problems right now? Job was another individual, and of course Job is famous for the trials that he had. And he had some very severe trials losing family members, having all kinds of diseases and sicknesses come upon him, just one after another, boils all over his body, and the pain and the suffering he went through. And he couldn't understand why God allowed such things. Notice in Job 7, and I'll begin in verse 17. He says, What is man uh, that you should exalt him? that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment. Test him every moment. He wanted to know, why, why are you testing us all the time? Why are you testing me every moment? It says, how long, verse 19, will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? Have I sinned? And it goes on from there. But he's saying, how long? Why do, you, why do you test us all of the time? You know, Israel is an example that we are to learn from as we read in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. They were an example to those of us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And when we look at their struggles to go to the promised land, there's a great instruction there for us. Notice Deuteronomy, the 12th chapter. Deuteronomy 12, we read something here that we perhaps don't fully comprehend till we get to the New Testament. But in verse 8, Deuteronomy 12 and verse 8, it says, You shall not at all do as you are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Now, that was a problem back then, and, you know, that's a problem today. People don't want anybody telling them what to do. They want to do whatever is right in their own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest. He says there, uh, this is Moses. You've not yet come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the eternal your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, and he goes on from there, just picking up a couple verses here. But he talks about a time of rest. And he is relating the time of going into the promised land as a time of rest. 
They'd wandered about for 40 years in the wilderness, picking up stakes and putting them down again. Whenever the cloud moved or the pillar at night, pillar of fire at night, they had to get up and they had to move and pack up once again and then set up camp someplace else. And God led them through the wilderness and tested them and tried them in all kinds of ways. And he speaks here of a rest. The the promised land is a place of rest. Let's go over to the New Testament, Hebrews, the third chapter, Hebrews 3, because it picks it up there with a place of rest. Notice Hebrews, the third chapter. We'll start in verse 10. This is actually a quote from uh, one of the Psalms, Psalm 95. Uh, We could pick it up, verse 7. We'll go ahead. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial, trial, we might say a day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. So in this case, God says that your fathers tested me. They tried my patience, you might say. But it was a day of trial for them in the wilderness. Therefore, verse 10, I was angry with that generation and said, they they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. They'll not enter my rest. He was speaking there of the promised land, that they would not enter into that place of rest that he had for them. And then down in verse 18, it says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, of course, you could hold your place here, and you can go back to the book of Numbers, where we see that God finally had enough of them. At a certain point, he uh, decided that they were going to have to be tested and tried in the wilderness. You might hold your place in Hebrews because I'll come right back there. But in Hebrews, the 14th chapter, and verse 26, this is after the spies came back from spying out the land and gave an evil report and stirred the people up to uh, speak out against Moses and Aaron. And they're ready to stone them. And it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil generation? So God was tested or tried by their evil ways, who complain against me. I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Eternal, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. You're not going to go to the promised land. You're going to die in this wilderness. Verse 31. Your little ones whom you would, uh, whom you said would be victims, notice it's always how, well, we're not upset because ourselves, we, it's our children that we're concerned about. 
when you when you look at what happened there, they were always talking about, oh, this is going to hurt somebody else. It's not that it hurts me. It's it's my children or it's somebody else. That's an excuse that we often hear from people. He said, but your little ones whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days for each day you shall bear your guilt one year. Namely, forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Eternal, verse 35, has spoken. I have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. So those are the ones that God said would not enter into his promised land. Let's go back to Hebrews, the fourth, uh, the fourth chapter this time. He says in verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So there's a warning here in Hebrews. In fact, all through Hebrews we, we see that, that warning that, that we should not let loose. We should hang tight to the promise that's been made to us. We should hang in there. We should not give it up. And here he's saying, that today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And he says in verse 17 of chapter 3, And now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? And then chapter 4, verse 1 again, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So he's pointing out here that there is a rest for the people of God, and you read that all through uh, the fourth chapter and later. He's showing that there is a rest. There is a promised land, you might say, that God is offering to us. Now, this is further understood by the way, the manner in which Israel entered the promised land, through the city of Jericho. Let's go back to the book of Joshua. Because there are certain things that happened here as a type of something far greater at the end of the age. And there's no happenstance as to the manner in which Israel went into the promised land and took over the city of Jericho, which in a sense is a, is a type of Babylon, uh, it's a city that blocked the way into the kingdom of Israel, into the promised land, and that had to be overthrown first. And so in the sixth chapter of Joshua, in verse 3, it says, You shall march around the city, all you men of war, you shall go around all around the city once. This you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns, the, the shofars, Ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So the city of Jericho 
Uh, oftentimes, I think if we've never been, or if you've never been there, you, you think of these cities as being uh, great, massive cities. Uh, the city of Nineveh uh, was a day's journey across. It was was a very large city. Jericho was a significant city, but if you've ever been there, you realize that yes, they could easily walk around it seven times. It, it was not that big because the city was was uh, built, a walled city, and of course they had the lands around it, but the city itself was not that large, just a few acres. And it could easily be surrounded and walked around, and yet the walls were to protect the people. And as long as the walls were up, it would be difficult to overthrow the city, but it, it could be done, but nevertheless, it would be done at a great cost. So God caused them to, uh, cause the walls to fall down, as we know. We're all familiar with this, so I won't take a lot of time reading it. But let's notice down in verse 15 that something was different. They walked around the city and they blew the horns, the the priests there, the seven priests with seven horns. But then we get to verse 15, it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day, and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner, On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Eternal has given you the city. And we know that the city walls came tumbling down. Rahab and her family were spared. But all the rest of the city uh, were killed as a result of this battle that took place there. Now, we see this pattern of seven trumpets in seven days, so to speak, at the end of the age. Uh, We know that when Christ returns, he will return the sound of a trumpet and the shout of an archangel. Just as they had trumpets and the shouting of the people, it was really a type of what is to come in the future. Notice 1 Corinthians 15. This is pretty basic, I understand. But uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 50, says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We need to understand that, that flesh and blood is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. It's a very good article uh, by Dr. O'Neill in the, uh, the magazine that will come out in September on health and all. And he, he begins it by talking about the fact that we have turned health in this life to be a God, and people are looking for the, the perfect body and everything. I remember up in uh, uh, over in Kansas City, I used to go to this fitness club, and I'd done all kinds of different things over the years, swimming and biking and uh, literal biking and as well as machines and uh, weights and all that sort of thing. And uh, one year at camp, as Christian McNair talked about uh, doing some exercise, I think she had a step aerobics class. And I thought, well, that kind of looks fun. I'm tired of just being by myself doing all these things. So I joined a step aerobics class. And there were only a few of us guys in there. It was mostly women. But, did I, you know, it's at the point where I said, I, I really don't care. I'm just going to do it. But there were a couple ladies at the, uh, the club that uh, it was clear that they – were so meticulous about everything. They, they, they measured their arms or legs. If they got too big, they let up 
exercising, and I, I learned this from somebody who told me about it, uh, but they, they, they were trying to have the perfect bodies. And, you know, we have people that take Botox and they put it in their lips, they make it, their lips look bigger. I've never understood why. I, I, I guess that's supposed to look sexy or something. And they've got all these things that people do and, and all these, uh, what do they call it? Plastic surgery, surgeries and, and sometimes they turn out to be a wreck. In fact, I think they've got a reality show out there. I've never watched it, but I think they've got a reality show out there on, uh, bad, uh, plastic surgeries, and so they're trying to recover and trying to fix what somebody else did to them. But our, our physical bodies have become gods for many people. Now, we want good health, and that's one of the things that Dr. Renee was talking about in the, in the article, that the Bible does have something to say about good health. But nevertheless, we don't want to make a god out of these, these things, and to be able to have just the perfect body that uh, is going to, I guess, impress somebody because it's not going to last. It simply will not last. I weigh about the same as I did in high school. But when I was high school, I looked thin because I, I you know, it was mostly, well, I won't say mostly, but it was a lot more muscle. Today, it's not so much muscle, and it's all sagging. It's all going south. And as most of us find out, for guys, we, we get a little bit of a paunch there, and uh, it's hard to get rid of. So it, it, it's one of those things that this physical life is not going to last forever, but it is a God to many people. And life in the physical flesh is not going to go on. We all have an expiration date. We just don't know when it is for most of us, but it's going to happen. And this physical life is not going to carry over the physical part of it into the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, as it says. But I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, I haven't read Matthew's account. It talks about something similar. But I read this because it mentions the last trumpet, indicating that there's more than one trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We're going to be changed. There is a reward in the future for those who are God's people, those who are Christ. Let's notice over in First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 4. And we'll begin, well, in fact, just read one verse, verse 16. We read this oftentimes, showing that we should not be overly concerned about those who have fallen asleep and sorrowing as others who have no hope, indicating that we have a hope. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's going to be the sound of a trumpet and with the shout of an archangel. Now, whether that will be something that we audibly hear, uh, some think so, some think not, it doesn't matter. There's going to be uh, the shout, whether it be heard by everybody or just those who are uh, resurrected, but a shout of the archangel, the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. And that's when the dead are going to rise. Now, when we go over to the book of Revelation, book of Revelation, the 8th chapter, we see that there are 
seven trumpets that introduce the return of Jesus Christ. And you can read, I'll just pass over those in, uh, he, I'm sorry, Revelation, let me get the right, right book first of all. Revelation, the eighth chapter. We read about these trumpets that are blown. And when each one is blown, there is a disaster that occurs. And then you come to the 11th chapter of Revelation. And verse 15, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, that is the last angel to blow its trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven, again, voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So just as we saw the children of Israel go around the city of Jericho seven days, six days just once, and then the seventh day they went around seven times, and they were to keep silent on that day until the seventh time around, and then they would blow the trumpets and everyone would shout. Here we see that at the seventh trumpet of Revelation that we have the angels in heaven shouting. We have the archangels we read earlier. But here it says, the loud voices, plural, in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that's at the sounding of that seventh trumpet. Now, it was no accident that God used the conquering of Jericho to be a type of going into the promised land for those of us who are going to go into the a very different promised land. Uh, we, we see the pattern of sevens there, seven days. The seventh trumpet or the seventh day, seven trumpets are to be blown. And it's not a perfect analogy there, but we see that pattern taking place, and they had to conquer Jericho before they would go into the rest of the land. And here we find that at the end of the age, there are going to be seven trumpets that are blown. And it's going to, along with the seven last plagues, the destruction of Jericho, not Jericho, but of Babylon, it's going to fall again. And that's going to open up the opportunity for a seventh millennial rest for the people on this earth, but even more so for a rest for those of us who are God's people, a rest of very different kind. But we're going to have rest from Satan uh, at the end of the age where Uh, He's going to be removed, where there's going to be a thousand years of peace, a thousand years of what we might call a promised land. But for those who are gods, we're going to have a different kind of rest, a rest that will last forever. Just as God led Israel to the promised land, so we are being led to eternal life in the kingdom of God, which is the ultimate rest. If you'd like to know more about the promised land in, in, on the earth, the thousand-year reign of Christ. You can read our booklet on the world ahead, what, it, what will it be like. It's one that might be good to review from time to time. You see, this world is passing away over in 1 John 2. 1 John 2. And we read in verses 15 to 17, very famous passage we read from time to time, the admonition by John not to love the world and the things that are in the world. You see, we're physical, and so the physical things of this world appeal to our senses. And just as the sermonette was pointing out, 
that we need to put first things first, and when we take care of the important things, everything else will work out as opposed to the other way around. We need to understand that the things of this world are passing away. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the very things that took Eve and Adam down the wrong path, the lust of the flesh, the fruit looking good for food, the lust of the eyes, it appealed to one's senses, and the pride of life to be wise is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. It's the focus of this passage for us. The world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. You know, God is offering something to us that our minds cannot really fully comprehend. We're physical. We're weak. But God is offering to us something Truly amazing and remarkable, something that we would never have figured out. Over in the book of Luke, the fourth chapter, Luke 4, and we'll begin in verse 1. And this is also found in Matthew, the fourth chapter, verses 1 to 4. This word is slightly different, differently here, but... Uh, it's saying basically the same thing. In Luke 4, verse 1, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. He was tempted or tested, you might say, by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when he had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Matthew's account says these stones. There may have been one particular stone that he focused in on, that Satan did, to become bread. And Jesus, being the Son of God, could have done so. But to do so would have been to sin, to give in to Satan uh, and listen to him. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now, we read that, but how much does it sink into our minds and into our hearts? Where did Jesus get this? He said, It is written. And truly, he was quoting the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, the 8th chapter, And we'll begin reading in verse 1, Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. And, of course, the book of Deuteronomy is summing things up that had gone on for 40 years. It it actually begins the, what, the 11th month of the 40th year. And so there is a a period of a month or two before they go into the promised land. And it says, every command which I command you today, this is Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. You must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Eternal swore to your fathers. So they're ready to enter in. Those who who were 20 years of age and older had all died in the wilderness, but now a new generation has come along. And he says, you're ready to go in and possess the land 
of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the eternal your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Now, why did he do so? Here's the key, and this is the subject. To humble you and to test you. To know what was in your heart, whether you would obey, I'm sorry, whether you would keep his commandments or not. In verse 3, so he humbled you, allowed you to hunger. Think about it. There were times when Israel went hungry for a day or two. We know that at one occasion they went three days without water. Now, it doesn't mean that they had no supplies of water, canteens of one sort or another, skins. They might have had some. But they were running out of that water, and they saw no hope for water on the horizon, anywhere around. And so they panicked, and they got all concerned. And what do we do when things don't go our way? We gripe. We complain. We try to find someone to blame. Isn't that our human nature? What would it be like for us? I understand that the adventure trip, at least the one in Missouri, uh, they planned on water stops. And there were times when they didn't have water. The stop for the water, the, the stream or the, the creek or the, the spring was dry. And I don't know exactly how it was, but I get the impression from the write-up that there was a concern there. There was a concern. Of course, there were takeout areas, and they, they, it was not as though they were all going to die. But they got thirsty. And that's, that's good at times because it helps us to realize that we cannot depend on ourselves wholly. It's a, a time to put our trust that God will provide, and God always did provide for them. I don't want anybody to think that your kids were in great danger of dying. Uh, one, of our, one of our counselors this year at a camp in, in Texas, his mother uh, grew up in Ethiopia, and there was a civil war there. Very interesting person to talk to if you ever have the chance. And she told us that because of the army coming in and everything, she went to school one day at the age of 17, a girl, and her girlfriend, and they never went back home. They just kept on going and spent five months in the bush with the rebel forces there. And they were taken care of. And I remember her saying one time, you can go four days without water, I know. And yet, God provided for her, probably because he knew he would call her someday. God can provide. But think about it. What would it be like if you had to go three days without water? How would you handle it? Do you realize that that would simply be a test from God? Let me read it again. Verse 2. You shall remember that the eternal your God led you all the way, these, these 40 years in the wilderness, to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and we could add thirst, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man 
lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the eternal. That's a very powerful statement. When Jesus made that statement with Satan, he was hungry. He didn't give in to the temptation. He didn't grumble. He didn't complain. He didn't even rebuke. Well, he rebuked Satan, but he didn't, you know, use a reviling accusation against him. He just says, the Lord rebuke you. And, uh, or he said, you know, get from me, get away from me. And he trusted in God. Do we realize that God is testing us today? He's testing us in various ways. Your test may not be the same as my test, but we're all being tested. Mr. Carl McNair one time said, and my wife always remembers it, if you don't pass the test today, you're going to have to do it again. He's going to know what we will do. He's going to give us many opportunities in this life. Tests and trials. Notice over here in verse 11. He says, beware. This is Deuteronomy 8.11. Beware that you do not forget the eternal your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. That's our world today. In, in spite of where we are, if we have a home today in this country, it's so much better than most of the world. We have such luxury here in this land and other western lands. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the eternal your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock. You know, when we were in Texas, it was hot. We talked about how hot it was. But I don't know that anybody got in a terrible attitude over it. It was just something you had to endure. I, I Maybe somebody did get in a rotten attitude over it. I don't know. But these people were led through a wilderness that was probably hotter and worse most of the time. And they had scorpions and fiery serpents and all the lack of water who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know. Here it is again, that he might humble you, might humble you to help you recognize that he is God and that we are physical human beings who are dependent upon him. That he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. In other words, there is a good benefit after the testing is over. But he says, then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hands have gained me this wealth. That's what we have come to in our land. We think, well, we did it all ourselves because of our constitution, because of our, you know, our hard work that we did it all ourselves. God is removing those blessings. Much of the western United States is in severe drought. The northwest is on fire, so to speak. And we have 
the middle part of the country is being flooded. Twenty, how many people killed in uh, Kentucky? Was it twenty something? Twenty-five? I forget what the number is. But a number of people killed in floods in Kentucky. St. Louis had over eight inches of rain in one day, and more rain as well. Even Las Vegas has been flooded. And those flash floods take place out there in the desert, but apparently this one was much worse than normal in some of the casinos. That just breaks my heart, doesn't it break yours? The casinos got flooded, some of them. Uh, Sin City, as they call it. But there are a lot of decent people there. We have a few members there. Not everybody is in the casino or working for them. A lot of good people wherever we go. But he might humble you that he might test you to do you good in the end. That's what God has in mind. Notice Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13. In verse 1, this is a different kind of test that he describes here. But this is another test that we must learn to overcome. In verse 1, he says, If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. So, you know, sometimes God allows a sign, a wonder of some sort that people can look to and think, oh, this is proof of where God is working. He says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the eternal your God is testing you, notice testing you, to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So we don't look to signs and wonders of any sort, but we look to the word of God. We look to the commandments of God. We look to how God is working on this earth and where he's working. He says, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the eternal your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the eternal your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. So in the case of someone coming along with some idolatrous idea, it doesn't matter what the, what the sign or the wonder was. He said, don't follow them. Follow what you read in the scriptures. And it's such an evil thing that at that time they were to be put to death. This was under the old covenant. We don't do that today. If we did, we'd have to mount a war against much of our, our country. That's not for us to do today. But the principle is there for the people of God to understand how we are to react when people try to lead us astray. It says, if your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, even your own wife, in other words, or your friend who is your as your own soul, secretly enticing you, saying, let us go and serve other gods. Let's go in a different direction, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. 
You shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, hide him. You know, sometimes even in the church we have someone come along and has some really strange and weird ideas, but don't tell anybody. God said you are not to conceal someone who's trying to lead people astray. A wolf in sheep's clothing. But you shall surely kill him. Now, we don't do that. We understand that. But sometimes in our mind, we have to write somebody off in terms of our fellowship with them, as the Apostle Paul spoke of there in, in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and elsewhere, to mark or to note some of those who cause divisions, which is contrary to the word of God. But you shall surely kill him or write him off. Your hand shall be first. Verse 10, you shall stone him with stones until he dies. We, we see that this is a serious issue with God. So all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do wickedness as this among you. Again, we don't, we don't apply the death penalty. But sometimes we have to let somebody go and not, not be their friend anymore. And yet there are times when people say, well, a friend is a friend forever. I remember a sermon that was given on that back in 1974, Feast of Trumpets. And the church had gone through a difficult time. There were some who had left the church, quite a big falling away at that time. And this minister gave this sermon, a friend is a friend forever. Had nothing to do with the Feast of Trumpets. And I was quite furious because I knew where he was coming from. It was the first time I'd ever heard him speak, but I knew where he was coming from and who his friends were. And the idea was that, okay, people leave the church and they go off in a different direction, try to take people away. You don't write them off as a friend. Well, you may still love them, but what do you have in common after that? Gone very different directions. And that minister himself spent time in prison following his friend and some harebrained scheme they had to not pay taxes. You know, these things are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are to learn from them. These are trials. These are tests. He says, I'm testing you to see whether you're going to follow some sign or wonder or whether you should keep the commandments of God, God's commandments. Life is a test. It is a test for us. In Luke, the 14th chapter, Luke 14, and verse 26, what I call the most sober, frightening scripture in all the Bible, Because of what it means, verse 26, if anyone comes to me, Jesus said, and does not hate, meaning love, to a lesser degree, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That's what Jesus said. He must come first. God must know where you stand and where I stand. He wants to know that. Because when we think of what's at stake here, living for all of eternity as a spirit, a powerful spirit being, God doesn't want any more Lucifers 
in his, in his, in his realm. Certainly not in his family. When we look at, let's go to 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. When we look at the scriptures, we find that God is testing us. God is trying us. And so when things don't go the way that we think they should go, we need to be very careful how we react, whether it be toward God or the church in general. He says in verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. So when we have very difficult trials come upon us, Peter counsels us, don't think it's strange. Don't think it's strange. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that you may, that uh, when he, his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Notice over in James, the first chapter. James 1, verses 2 and 3. James 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Boy, that's a hard one, isn't it? How often do we, when we fall into a trial of some sort, let's say that um, we just lose our job. Do we count it all joy when we come down sick? Do we count it all joy? Now, I understand that Nobody wants to get sick. Nobody wants to lose his job. Uh, nobody wants foreclosure on his house. All kinds of trials. I don't know what all the trials are that we go through. Perhaps a loss of a loved one. That, that's not easy. And no one's saying that it's easy. And it doesn't mean that we, we, we just uh, act like some sort of a non-human person just running around shouting for joy when these things happen. But... In other words, when we have time to think about it, we should try to see the big picture and find uh, joy and happiness in whatever the trial is. My brother, encounter all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing, the testing of your faith produces patience. Our faith is tested. Sometimes things happen to us that, that are trials or tests of our faith. It tests us whether we're still going to obey God. It tests whether we believe in God even. But he says here, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. David understood that there are trials in life, and he understood the big picture. Let's notice Psalm 17. Psalm 17. And we'll look at verse 1. Start there in verse 1. He says, hear a just cause, O eternal, attend to my cry. My cause is just, he says, and attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. So some kind of a trial here where he was being falsely accused or uh, set upon, and he says, let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart, verse 3. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. 
You have tried me and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. So when he was tested, he, he purposed that his mouth would not transgress. And that's what usually transgresses with most of us. Concerning the works of men by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the path of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. So hold me up. I understand you've tested my heart. You visited me in the night, as it were, at time when it was dark in my life. Notice the 26th Psalm, Psalm 26. Here David even asked God to test or examine him. Notice Psalm 26, verse 2. Examine me, O Eternal, and prove me. The margin says, test me. Now, how many of us pray to God, examine me, test me, give me a, a test to see what I'll do? For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of the evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. You know, David was a, a man after God's own heart. Just think about how he was willing to ask God to test him, to try him, because he was confident that he would stand the test. Of course, we know that he didn't in every case. We know he made some terrible mistakes, series of mistakes when it came to uh, Uriah and, and his wife Bathsheba. But David at other times wanted God to try him, to test him. Psalm 139, Psalm 139, and verse 23. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. This again is a psalm of David. I'm sorry, make sure I've got that right. Yeah, Psalm of David. Um, verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. He challenged God to search him and to know his heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So sometimes it's good for us to ask God to examine us, to test us, not because we want to fail, but if we're making a mistake someplace, we want God to bring that out and to test us and show us where our weaknesses may be. The Apostle Paul saw the big picture of life in Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians, the 12th chapter, he describes a vision that he had, that God gave him a vision of heavenly things. And then he comes down to... Uh, verse 7, he says, Lest I should be exalted above measure. This is 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. In other words, it would be easy to get all puffed up because of what he had seen. This grand vision that God had given him. It was so real to him. He says, A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. We don't know exactly what it was. 
we assume of some kind of sickness, illness, we don't know for sure. And there's great speculation, a lot of it pretty wild. And he said to me, somehow God said this to him, either a dream or vision or in his mind. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, verse 10, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do we rejoice in these things or do we, do we push against these things? Push against God when trials come upon us. We realize that these were great men of God who, who tell us these things. But I have to assume that there were times when they were weak just like you and me. They didn't pass every test perfectly. But they saw the big picture. And perhaps when Paul besought God three times, perhaps he didn't understand at first because Paul had performed great miracles on other people, just as Peter and others that write these verses. And David had seen God's intervention in his life time and time again. But we see that perhaps they struggled. Perhaps Paul struggled. And he besought God three times. And it was only perhaps after the third time that he began to see the big picture of things. And that's the way it is with us sometimes. Sometimes we have to look back and we see that big picture. There's a great reward that God is holding out to us those who choose God's ways. Over in Revelation, the 21st chapter, we read something that's hard for us to fully comprehend, but it gives us a little insight into the future. Revelation 21 and verse 1, it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Also there was no more sea. Some people get worried about that when it says no more sea. I'm sure that that's going to be taken care of one way or the other. We know there's a, a river of water. It says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, metaphor here. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. We're going to be there with God, the Father, and Jesus Christ and see them and be known by them and know them. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So whatever the trial is in this life, God is going to remove that. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This is a little bit, you can read more in this chapter, of the great reward that God is offering to us. In Psalm 16, Psalm 16, verse 11, we are all cons consumed with pleasure in this physical life. And yet God is not against pleasure in the right context. He says in verse 11, Psalm 16, 11, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures 
forevermore. Psalm 36. Psalm 36. And verse 7. Psalm 36, verse 7. says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. So during this physical lifetime, we must put our trust under the shadow of God's wings. They are abundantly satisfied with fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. So God is giving us of the rivers of his pleasure, so to speak. David understood the big picture. You can read Psalm 37, how he came to understand why the wicked sometimes prosper and why the righteous sometimes go through trials. You can read Psalm 37 or the 37th Psalm, which is written by Asaph. We're talking about the same subject. You can also read What is the Meaning of Life, our booklet on the subject. It used to be Your Ultimate Destiny. We've changed the title. That's the only thing that's been changed, uh, other than the little updates from here, uh, you know, here and there. Uh, but uh, it's essentially the same booklet as Your Ultimate Destiny. But we thought the title was better, What is the Meaning of Life? I encourage you to read that because it has so much in it. There's much that we can learn from Israel, from the example of David and the New Testament apostles, from their example that we can read in the Bible. But there's a reason why God allowed Israel to go without water from time to time, to humble them and to test them. And there's also a reason why he allows trials to come on you and me, why he does not give us, and I'm trying to think of a better word, but a charmed life, where he doesn't give us a life without trials. There's a reason why he doesn't. He's testing us to see whether we trust him and will obey him under all circumstances so that he can bring us into his very family. Those who put their trust in him will enter into his eternal rest. And I'd like to end with Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That's you and that's me. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God.